Today's scripture is from James 1, verses 2 through 18. I'm reading from the New International Version. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The word of the Lord. Good morning. So I got to do over break, uh, winter break, I guess that's what we call it here. Uh, I got to do the underground, Seattle underground tour. I know some, has anybody done the underground tour here in Seattle? Yeah, just about everybody's done the underground. I finally caught up. All right, good. Finally got through that. So I was doing the underground tour, and one of the things about the underground tour is you get a history lesson of Seattle. And I learned about how Seattle got started, and our guide was telling us about uh, the logging that happened, the timber that was cut down here in Seattle. And they had to figure out a way to get the timber down the hills towards the water, and actually that's where the mill was. In fact, there was a mill down at the bottom of the hill called Yesler's Mill. And they had to find a way to get the logs down to the mill to get onto the ships to ship them out. And so what what they created was this road, and they would cover the logs in like fish oil and other types of fats, and they would slide the logs down the hill, and this became known as Skid Road. Does anybody remember that from their underground tour, this idea? And this is where Skid Row or Skid Road got its name, was actually here in Seattle. I thought, oh, that's pretty cool, right? But I also started thinking, as a pastor, I'm listening to this history, and I'm going, 
oh, now this all makes sense spiritually too, right? Like, because part of what James actually explains to us today is there's this skid road that we encounter when it comes to sin in our lives. It's also interesting that what happened along skid road was that's where the bars and the brothels and all those things started to emerge for the loggers and the people working skid road and the people cutting the timber is those all those kind of lower living places those brothels and bars started to pop up around skid road it also became throughout history associated with low living versus the folks up on the hill you know the people up on the hill were kind of a little wealthier and the people down on the hill were not as wealthy and so all these these uh, ideas got and stereotypes got blended together But we now know that Skid Row or Skid Road is not a good place. We associate it with homelessness and other things along that road. But I want to talk about this idea, this original idea, is that we could slide downhill, right? And I think that's a good way of looking at how sin works in our lives. Now, a lot of times we don't talk about sin a lot, and we talk, I talk a lot more about grace than sin, I feel like, but I think at times it's important for us to look at sin and how sin works in our lives so that we can address it and deal with it and look at it and not just ignore it or act like it's not there. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at something, we're going to look at the temptations of money, sex, and power. Money, sex, and power. So be aware, parents, in two weeks, not next week, we're going to talk about money next week. The week after that, it'll be an R-rated sermon. Well, PG-13. I'll say PG-13. No R-rated, but PG-13. So just be aware of that if you have young children coming to that particular sermon, because we're going to talk about that temptation. We're going to talk about the temptations of money, sex, and power and actually, there's a book out that Richard Foster wrote that just came out with its new, edi- they came out with their new edition of that just last year uh, called The Celebration of the Disciplined Life and the Reflections on Money, Sex, and Power. So if you want to take a look at that book, great book I would recommend to look at. So I thought today we'd look at this and we're going to zero in. It's interesting because James actually touches in this passage on money and power and sex all in this passage in some way. But I want us to zero in on this idea of skid road this morning. So I want to refer you to verses 14 and 15 this morning. And let's take a look at those verses. It says this, James writes this, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Death. And I can actually see how James is describing sin and t- temptation and sin as a process, right? It's not something that you just instantly do, that there's a process behind this, that there's thinking that goes into this, that there's a, actually something more going on that maybe we're not even consciously aware of when it's happening to us. So I thought what I would do today is show you how temptation works for me, and I will show you how I'm going to slide into temptation right in front of your eyes this morning. Wouldn't you love to see that? I'm going to actually show you, I'm going to take a desire in my life that's fairly innocent desire, uh, and I'm going to show you how I slide into giving into that desire and how I give into that temptation, and I'm going to do it right before you this morning, and I'm actually going to enjoy doing it, by the way. <laughs> so, so, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't know where you're going to go with this, Matt, but all right, let's go. All right. So first of all, you have a desire. Let's talk about the desire that Matt has. So I'm in the, I'm in, uh, the market the other day, and I'm there to buy cereal. And I'm trying to eat, he- how many people here are trying to eat healthy? You know, you're trying to eat healthy, trying to eat right. 
Yeah, I like. I love the honesty over here. So, uh, you know, so I got one of these. You know, so we're trying. That's probably the honest answer. How many of you are kind of like this about eating healthy? Like, I want to, but you know, not really, right? So we're really like that. Honesty is a good thing. So we start with this desire, and I'm in the cereal aisle, right? And I'm looking for healthy cereal in the cereal aisle. I want to eat healthy cereal. I'm going to get the good stuff, and I want to be healthy when I get up in the morning and eat all the healthy stuff for me. And so I'm in the cereal aisle, and I'm looking at all the cereals, and I notice that some of these, quote, healthy cereals have chocolate in them. Have you noticed this? They have little pieces of chocolate in them, and I'm thinking, oh, that looks pretty good, right? But, you know, I realize that I want to eat healthy, so I don't get the cereal with the little pieces of chocolate in it. I, get the, I got the Raisin Bran. I got the healthy fiber Raisin Bran, so we got everything going. So I get the Raisin Bran, put it in the cart, and I pull out of the cereal aisle. But, you know, I saw this picture. I got this chocolate idea in my head, right? It's a desire, right? I desire chocolate now. So I have this chocolate desire going on in me, and I think to myself, what's it going to hurt to walk over to the candy aisle? Well, what's the big, I'm not doing, I'm not going to buy chocolate. <laughs> I'm just going to go look at chocolate. <laughs> it, are you with me here? I mean, does this go on in here? I'm not like intending to buy chocolate, but I want to look at chocolate. See how this works? See how I'm beginning to give in to temptation without even being aware of it? So I go over into the candy aisle, and I'm looking at the chocolate. But I want you to know, so the first thing starts with desire. The next thing James says is that we get dragged away. Notice that? Dragged away means literally to be moved from the right place or the healthy place to the place that's not healthy. Or to be, to be dragged away means to be moved from the right place, the place that we're to be, to the place that we are going to be tempted that's what James means by being dragged away. I want you to notice this, how this happened. I actually moved from the healthy aisle, right, in the grocery store to the unhealthy sugar-filled aisle in the grocery store. Now, who decided to do that? Whose choice was that? Mine, right? This is why James says, God is not tempting us. Did you hear that in the passage? It says, James says, no one should think that God is tempting them because what I made that choice. God didn't make that choice for me. God, I, God didn't make that decision for me. I made the decision to move from the place of health to the place of temptation. Do you see how that works? And we do that often, and we don't even think about or realize that we're doing that. And because we're not consciously thinking about it, I'm just thinking about chocolate right? So I'm actually being drawn out of the right place. And this is why James argues that it's not God who's doing the tempting. We are the ones putting ourselves in that position. It's interesting because in the first century, what James was up against was he was up against a culture that blamed the gods for sin. They would say, well, the gods made me do it. Or fate. This was just fate. I'm fated this way. I, I can't help it. You know, this is just the way fate laid things out. And so they blamed not themselves. They didn't take responsibility for themselves. They blamed something else for their decision to be tempted and to move into sin. Which, I thought about that. How do we, do we do that today? Do we blame someone else? Do we maybe blame God? Or maybe we blame genetics? Or maybe we blame uh, something else about uh, the world or the culture or whatever, and we blame all these other things. But I want you to notice that in this situation of temptation, 
I am ultimately responsible for my decision to move from the place of health to move to the place of sugar, right? I am responsible for that. I can't blame anybody else for that decision. I can't blame God. I can't blame my genetics. I can't blame any of those things. All I can do is own that, right? That's part of it. That's part of realization and and awareness and so forth. And I think part of it is, is that I also want to bring up this idea that we're in the season of Lent. We're in the season of Lent, and some people have decided to give up chocolate for Lent. I can't imagine what that's like. Um, but, you know, part of, that, part of that Lent in practice and discipline, we call it a discipline, what's important is when you pre-decide to not do something is important. So if I had decided during Lent not to take up chocolate, not to eat chocolate, which I didn't, by the way, but if I had, if I had pre-decided that, I would have not gone to the chocolate. I would have been less, I won't say I wouldn't have gone to the chocolate aisle. I'll say I would have been less likely to go to the chocolate aisle because I had said during Lent, I'm giving this up. See what I'm saying? So my pre-decision, my pre-planning not to give in to that desire helps me not to give in to that desire. This is important too. I just want to put that out there that you have to pre-decide and pre-plan what you're not going to do. Does that make sense? Rather than just letting it happen right? Because what naturally happens to us in the grocery, especially in the grocery store, is a great example, is that we're, if I don't have any decision about chocolate, I haven't made any plans about chocolate, I'm just going to end up in the chocolate aisle. It's just, it's just the course of, of desire. That's the course, that's how we slide in to temptation and slide into that. Notice the next thing that James describes is we're enticed. We're enticed. Now, another way to translate is that, that we're lured, Right? And so I go into the chocolate aisle, right? How many, anybody fish, go, ever go fishing and have to get a pole and a line and you got a lure on the end of the line and you throw that into the water, right? And you put it out there in the water and you sit there and you dangle that lure in front of the fish trying to get the fish to bite. So I want you to think about temptation that way, that temptation, there's a lure, there's something that lures us, right? The chocolate lures me away from the healthy thing over to the chocolate aisle, and now what I'm doing in the chocolate, what am I doing in the chocolate aisle? I am staring at all the different chocolate options. They're like lures sitting there on the shelf, luring me to take one of them, right? But I'm just looking, right? I'm not actually, I haven't actually taken one of these. I haven't actually eaten the chocolate. I'm just looking at the lures. I'm considering. And here are some of the things that go through my head when I look at chocolate. Do you know that dark chocolate is good for you? (laughs) Right? What did I just do? Let's just break that down, right? Yeah. I just justified it, right? Notice what I justified it with. What did I justify it with? Yeah, truth. (laughs) Amen, brother. I love it. We got some other sinners in the house. Let's go. (laughs) Church is supposed to be full of sinners, by the way, Um, not saints. Um, We're trying to become saints. By the way, we're trying to become saints. This is what this sermon's about, trying to be a saint. We're not saints. We're sinners trying to become saints. Anyway, I digress. But thank you, brother, whoever said that. Um, 
So what happens is, is that what I'm saying is, notice that what was I saying in the cereal aisle to myself? I want to be what? Healthy. Notice how I take that good value, that's a good thing, right, to be healthy, and I apply it to my temptation. I apply it to the desire. That's justification. That's rationalization. See, we take these good things, these good values, and we convince ourselves that our desires are good, right? And so that's kind of how we play this little mental game with ourselves when it comes to temptation. We play this little justification game, this little rationalization game, so that we can get the chocolate. And so I do that, and I justify it. So then James says the next step is, not, so I'm being enticed, and I'm actually rationalizing my, 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 my temptation, and then it's conceived. And to conceive, actually, it's interesting that, that, uh, that James uses this reproductive uh, illustration, but to, to conceive really means to take hold of. So I'm looking at the lures, but the moment that it's sin is conceived in me is the moment I take the chocolate bar to myself. Now, so sin has been conceived in me at this point as an illustration. I'm still going to eat chocolate. So I've been enticed. It's been conceived. And I want you to notice that if you go back to the Garden of Eden and you look at Adam and Eve, before they actually bite the fruit, what do they do? They take it off the tree. They take it, right? to themselves, and they examine it, right? And what did I do when I was in the aisle, the chocolate aisle? What did I do? I took the chocolate bar off the shelf. I looked at the label. I looked at, oh, that's good for you, 70%. That's supposed to be good, you know? And I, so I'm examining it, and I'm saying it's good for me, right? That's how it works. And so then I take it, but I want you to notice something. Technically, I've not sinned, right? Have I? Have I sinned? Have I not sinned? It's been conceived, but technically I haven't sinned at this point. I haven't inhaled, by the way. (laughs) So I haven't ingested, but I have it in my possession, right? So it's been conceived in me, and this is the hard part. This is why the slippery skid road is sliding, because once you start sliding, it gets very hard to stop. Once you start the slide, and I would say to you that the moment the slide started was the moment I stepped into the chocolate aisle, not when I grabbed it. It started way ahead of when, in my decision to move from the healthy place to the other place. And so I've got the chocolate bar now, and I've examined it, and I really still, I would suggest to you though, I still have not sinned, technically. And God said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I want you to, I want you to notice that word endure, right? It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, right? You actually have to endure it. So I still have some outs here. I still have a possibility of not eating the chocolate. So I still, even through this whole process, I could have gotten out. I could have moved a different way. I could have made a different decision. I could have made a different choice. All along that process, I had other options. And I still have the option, as this sits in my grocery bag, you know, I still have the option of the cash register to put up on the shelf, say, hey, I'm not going to buy this. Even when I get home, I have the option of giving it to my wife and saying, don't let me eat this, right? I have outs all the way along. But I get home, and I've done such a great job shopping 
I, I am worn out from being in the grocery store. Does anybody ever come home tired from the grocery store, right? And I think to myself, Matt, you deserve a reward for shopping. And so I pull the chocolate bar out, and I think to myself, I'm just, what's a, what's a little piece going to do? Huh? Right? No, it's not a big deal. So you're asking me to share my sin with you. Is that what you said? All right. Come see me after the sermon if it's all still here. Um, so we're, I'm in this place, and I'm getting, so I eat the chocolate. Now I've sinned, right, in this analogy. I don't think eating chocolate is, a, is, a, is necessarily a sin. But what you're seeing is how desire works, and now I've eaten, and that's what James says, I've given birth to it, Right? I've given birth to sin. I, I've rewarded myself, and now I've given it. And I'm actually enjoying it, by the way. That's the thing about sin is it's, it's enjoy. Let's just be honest. It's, there's enjoyment to it, right? And I'm fulfilling that desire, but that doesn't last very long. The other thing I would say about there's some other attributes of sin that we need to be aware of, and that is not only is it a desire, but sometimes I find that there are people, and there have been times in my life where I just like sinning. Like, if you tell me not to do something, it makes me want to do it more. Have you noticed that? That's all through the Bible, too, by the way. And so there's this idea that the more risky it is or the more rebellious it is, the more tempting it is. Have you noticed that? That it makes it actually harder because I think part of our nature and part of our human condition is that we can actually enjoy doing these things, Right? And they, they, we enjoy them, and we, it's, and we gratify those things. And what happens is we actually enjoy it. And I find that when it's even more risky or more rebellious type of behavior, it heightens the gratification. And sometimes we sin just for the sake of sinning, just because we want to. I'll give you an example out of my childhood, middle school. My friend came to me, and he said, uh, you know, it was, it was late fall, uh, and all the vegetable gardens were, were done. And uh, his, his dad had grown all these tomatoes in their garden. And all these rotten tomatoes were in the, in the garden. And he said, let's go collect up the rotten tomatoes. And let's go throw them at cars. I had not thought of this. He, he came up with the idea. And I'm like, sure, why not? What's the worst that could happen? Right? But what's going on? Is, why are we doing this? We, we get nothing out of this other than the sheer joy of doing something wrong. See how that works? So we're just being rebellious. We're just being, we'd say, you know, kids or whatever. We, that's the excuse. I don't think that's a good excuse. But basically what we're doing is we're saying we're going to do this just to do this because we enjoy, I want you to just notice that part of our human nature is that we could actually enjoy just doing something wrong. Even though it's, it's not like I really wanted to throw tomatoes at car. That's not something I woke up that morning. I can't wait to go throw tomatoes. Came up with the idea, let's go do it. And so we did it, um, much to my parents' chagrin. And so we went into this, and the reason we could do it is because we could hide under the, down by the road, and there was a culvert. We would hide in the culvert. We'd go out, throw tomatoes, and we'd hide in the culvert. And the car drivers never saw us. And we did this until a guy in a convertible came by. And uh, he's driving in a convertible, and he's got the top down. 
And, I, and we're not paying much attention. You know, we're not thinking. Let's just put it. When you're in middle school, you're not thinking. And we launch these tomatoes, and the guy slams on the brakes. Start. And he gets out of the car. And as I'm running to the culvert, out of the corner of my eye, I see he's got a gun on his sidearm. I think he was a police officer. And we hide under the culvert, and I can hear him pacing around up on the road. And we're down there, like, just freaking out. You know, we're like, you're going to die. This is it. This is the end of life. But that cured us of ever, I mean, he actually got in his, back in his car finally, and we could hear the wheels spin out, and he took off down. He was mad. And uh, if you're here today, if that guy is here in the car, I apologize. Uh, please forgive me after all these years. Um, but... Um, that cured us right there, didn't it? That cured us. We didn't do that ever again because we realized that was serious, right? We could have died. We could have died. Notice that that's where sin takes us. That it's all fun and games, <laughs> and it keeps going okay until you face death, until something really bad happens, and it usually does. But the other step in between that birth and death is that sin becomes full-grown. I, I think about this, how James put this, that sin becomes mature. And part of maturity is its ability to reproduce. Now, the thing about sin, and especially some desires around money, sex, and power, right? I mean, if you think about money, you need more and more of it, which leads to the sin of greed. If you look at sex, you, if you want more and more of it, then it leads to lust. If you have power and you're desiring and tempted by power, you'll have, want more and more of it, and that leads, that's driven by pride. But notice that all those money, sex, and power are all places where we have to keep ramping up the desire to get the same level of gratification. We have to keep doing more and more of it, and that's why I think it's possible for sin to mature in our lives. If we keep repeating it over and over again, if we keep giving in to it over and over again, what happens is it actually matures, and it actually can take over and lead to what James says is death, leads to death. Because notice, notice some of the, the, the ways we talk about being on skid road. Is that when somebody's on skid road, we say they're never gonna, they're, they're sliding, right? And they're in the slide and temptation and sin. And we don't ever change. We say people won't change until they what? Until they hit rock bottom, right? Notice that that's what, how we make that terminology. And we keep saying, well, once they hit rock bottom, well, sometimes I wonder, how long is Skid Road? I would also, after thinking, this is me, not the Scripture, not God. This is just Matt thinking out loud with you. I think it's possible to be at rock bottom but be stuck there. I think it's possible to be at rock bottom and be stuck there because... When you're at rock bottom, in particular sin, and you're in this, now sin is now taking over your life, it's actually destroying your life, it's harming your life, is that you're, it's possible to look back up the hill you just slid down, and you look up, back up the hill, and you're so discouraged, and you look up the hill and you say, there's no way I can get out of here. There's no way I can get out of here on my own. There's no way I can get, I can't climb out of that. If you were to try and climb up Skid Road, back when it was covered with fish oil and mud and all the logs had gone down. Imagine trying to climb back up that hill. It's hard. And so part of, I think, hitting rock bottom can also be resignation. You can just be there and just say, this is it. 
I'm stuck. I'm done. But I want to say to you, there's hope. <laughs> but we're right in, and we're right in, a, in making the assumption that we're not able to get out on our own. We actually need somebody from outside to help us. And I think that's why Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent for that very reason. You see, because I think we can get our, find ourselves stuck in sin and trapped in sin, and until we connect and meet Jesus, things are going to be very hard for things to change. I've been, I watched a docuseries uh, called The Horn, which is about search and rescue team on the Matterhorn in Switzerland. And in the first episode, they got a call. There was, a, there was someone skiing, and there were skiers behind him, and he was skiing, and then all of a sudden, he just disappeared. The other skiers behind him knew that that skier had fallen into crevasse. And so that skier went, oh, was skiing, went into the crevasse, and got stuck down the crevasse. He was unconscious at the moment. They knew not to get too close to the crevasse, otherwise they would go in, so they called in search and rescue. They called in the rescue team at the Matterhorn, and they, the, and they showed up. The rescue team flew a helicopter in, they set up a wench over the crevasse, and they lowered one of their rescue workers down by wench into the crevasse to find the guy. They didn't know where he was. They didn't know how far down he was, but they just kept lowering, and it's a pretty intense scene just to watch them lower, and he's yelling, Are anybody there, anybody there? And he's looking for this lost skier. He finally gets to the bottom, not all the way to the bottom, but the fortunate for the skier, the skier got wedged in the crevasse before hitting bottom. And part of the reason it got wedged is because lots of chunks of ice had filled in around the skier and helped to wedge in the crevasse. And, he, and so the skier didn't hit bottom, but was stuck in the crevasse and semi-conscious. Broken back, bruised, be, bleeding, when he finally was found. There was no way this skier was getting out of the crevasse on his own. No way. I think there's places of sin and destruction and death where we get to the point where it's hard. There's no way we're going to self-rescue. <laughs> we need outside intervention, which is, why I think, why Jesus came. And so they go in, and they actually save his life, and he makes a full recovery. And he goes back, and he thanks the rescue team that, that saved, saved him. He was their save, his savior, right? Now, I thought about this situation a little bit more, too, and I want to just point out something. There are a lot of options when you talk to somebody who's stuck in sin, someone who's stuck in that crevasse. All of us, actually, it says in the Bible, are stuck there. But there are different approaches to how you deal with that. One approach is, I bet you some of his friends, had they got close and yelled down, would have yelled some advice down to him because they can't go down in there, right? So what they do is they'd yell advice, right? They might have said, hey, can you find anything to grab onto? Grab onto it. Can you unwedge yourself, right? So they would have yelled down all these instructions <laughs> that doesn't help with someone who's stuck in semi-conscious, right? But they're, what are they doing? They're trying to be helpful, right? They're, they're, they're actually trying to help. And I would say, and that's what some religions do. Some religions instruct us and teach us and try and show us how to get out of the crevasse ourselves. And then I think there might have been even some other little cynical part of me goes, there might have been some other said, I told you if you skied down there, you'd fall in the crevasse. 
A lot of good that does right now, right? Judgment, advice, you know, like you shouldn't have done this. You ought to think twice next time you do that. You know, that's not helping the person in the crevasse. It's not helpful at all. Because the person in the crevasse is going, I, I understand that now, right? I got fully aware. And then I think there are other approaches that would be like, well, just try and relax and try and breathe and try and calm yourself. And that's good advice, actually, when you're in a stressful situation. When you're stressed out, that, that's helpful. And actually, the rescue team wants you to be relaxed and calm. But that relaxed, de-stressed, calming state, which other, place, other advice gives us and other, sometimes other religions give us, doesn't get us out of the crevasse. It just helps us to cope with the crevasse we're in. <laughs> it doesn't rescue us. We need somebody to lower themselves down into the crevasse and raise us out of it. Jesus is God's search and rescue team when it comes to our sin. Jesus is our search and rescue team. And interestingly enough, it says in the Bible, right, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're stuck in sin, you're stuck in that crevasse, it says that if you call, he'll come. You call, he comes. He gets you unstuck. You cannot do it yourself. You and I cannot do it on our own. I want you to notice this. When that search and rescue team member gets down to the person that's stuck, you know what the first thing he does is, he or she does is? takes a carabiner off of their belt and hooks it onto the victim and says to them, I got you now. You're not going anywhere. You're connected to me, and I'm going to get you out of here. And then they start to chip away all the things that is keeping that person in the crevasse so that they can lift them out. See, when we call on Jesus in our sin, in our stuckness, in our brokenness. Jesus shows up. And notice that we're still stuck, but Jesus says, doesn't matter what happens from here on out, I got you. I am connected to you. You're not going anywhere without me. And then Jesus begins to chip, at the way, chip away at the things that have us stuck to free us. And I would say getting, out of the, getting into the crevasse is a process. Getting into sin is a process. Getting out of it is a process too. It's a whole process. And you and I, when we meet Jesus, when we call on Jesus, Jesus comes in and says, I'm going to help you out. And we just need to trust that. At some point, you have to trust that Jesus is going to lift you out of that sin. Let's pray together.